0: Back when I was in college, my roommate and I used to like to watch Monday night football. And one of the things they did back then was a segment called You Make the Call. Does anybody remember that back when they did it? What would happen is right somewhere before halftime, they would show this play, this controversial play that had happened in a previous game. And then before the referee would make the call, they would say to you, you make the call. And so my roommate and I had both played football in high school and we were big time into football. And we would argue during the commercial before they came back and showed you know the, the they showed show Show you the play again, and they give you the opportunity to to make your call, and then they tell you what was going on, and they would um, tell you the rule that it was based on. Well, we loved you make the call. We had a great time with that. Well, during this whole Da Vinci Code series, what we're going to do is we're going to present to you the evidence that is. that is on the side of the Bible, and then we're going to present to you the evidence that's supposed to be on side of the Da Vinci Code, and then we're going to say at the end, you make the call. That's our whole desire, is for you to weigh the evidence and to make the call. So let's get started. Now, since very few of you have uh, read the book or gone to the movie, and by the way, I I intend to go to the movie this week. I have read the book. I've done lots of studying on it. The book is a great read if you just like a novel, if you just like a page-turner. Uh, Jason said this morning and in the, the group that's meeting here, he said, you know, he likes short chapters. Well, it's short chapters, but every chapter leaves you hanging. Dan Brown is a great novelist. About halfway through the book, I got mad because it started attacking Christianity and his agenda came out. But let me just give you just the basic uh, plot line of this thing that's going on. Tom Hanks' character, he is, uh, he is playing Robert Langdon, who is a Harvard symbologist who just happens to be in Paris, France, on the night that the director of the famous Louvre Museum is murdered. Now, Robert Langdon is, is brought by the French police to the Louvre to, to help them under the, under the guise that he's going to help them solve this murder. Um, but really, Robert Langdon ends up being the number one suspect in the murder. He doesn't know that. And so they're trying to pick his brain and trying to figure out all this stuff. Well, the, the guy who was the director of the, the, the Louvre, His granddaughter's name Sophie, and she comes involved in this. So Robert Langdon and Sophie run around all over the countryside in France. They end up going to England and and all these different places trying to, to figure out what's going on because they have stumbled on this secret society. And the secret society supposedly protected the explosive knowledge... That Jesus Christ was actually married to Mary Magdalene, had a child named Sarah, because of persecution from the early church, they ran away to the, to France, and started this, uh, dynasty, the Merovingian dynasty, you know, the kings of France. I mean, you talk about the wildest imagination possible. That's what's going on in this, in this whole book. And so, he just stumbles onto all of these things, and, and then what he says is, in the book, that Jesus was not considered God's son, was not considered divine until Constantine, which was 300 years or so after Jesus died. And then he says that the that the early church um, covered up all of these loads and loads of documents that supposedly backed up all of his claims. And so it's it's kind of crazy. And a lot of people say, what's the big deal? I've heard this argument all this week. What's the big deal? It's just fiction. Well... Let me tell you what the big deal is. Ryan and Mandy went to the movie the other night and they said he heard people in Tyler, Texas say, oh, yeah, this is true. This stuff's true. This is real. In Tyler, it's not like, you know, just people on the other side of the world are believing this. People in Tyler, Texas, people in Palestine, Texas are going to believe this. This is now sold somewhere near 60 million copies. The, uh, the Da Vinci Code book has. And it was recently, just a couple of months ago, put into paperback form. And the first release of this, they released six million copies. I didn't think that was a big deal, but they're making a big deal about it. They're saying never has a paperback release of a novel gone six million. To put it in perspective, whenever the... um, um what was it? I just went blank. Harry Potter. Whenever Harry Potter was put into paperback form, it was two million. Y'all know how, many, how popular Harry Potter is? This book was put into 6 million initial paperback print. We're not talking the hardback, the paperback print. And part of the problem is that um, Time Magazine has has uh, labeled Dan Brown as one of the most 100 influential people on the planet. So you got about 60 million people who've read the book you got Time Magazine saying that he is influential, and and Dan Brown has an agenda. And let me read you this. I think we have this on the screen. This comes from danbrown.com. 2,000 years ago, we lived in a world of gods and goddesses. Today, we live in a world solely of gods. Women in most cultures have been stripped of their spiritual power. The novel, referring to the Da Vinci Code, touches on questions on how and why this shift occurred and what lessons we might learn from it regarding our future. Now, so this book, if you ever read it, it will raise a lot of questions for you. Questions such as, these are questions that I've heard. Are there other ancient documents other than what we have in the New Testament that talk about Jesus? Are there more? Are these documents more reliable than what we have in the New Testament? Was Jesus married and did he have a child? Was Leonardo da Vinci part of a secret society who knew all about all of this? Was Jesus human or was he divine? What was the Holy Grail... And how long will it take for all of us to sort this out? Well, the basic answers are yes, no, 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 both. We don't know in about three weeks. All right, let's stand for closing prayer and we're done. Now, why do we even care? Why do we even care? Uh, We were talking about this in the earlier group. Back in 1988, there was a movie by Martin Scorsese put out called The Last Temptation of Christ. And, And do you know what Christians did back then? We, we boycotted, we picketed now i didn 't, but I remember driving by this little theater in, in Austin, Texas, and people were out there chanting you know and, and carrying their signs and, and uh, nobody even bothered to answer the claims in the last temptation of Christ, which was one of the one of the claims was that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Well, here we are you know. 20 years later, and this thing is coming back up. And I think the church did a really poor job back then of answering the claims. So what I've been pleased by is all of the churches throughout the world who are preparing series just like this. Um, and they are addressing these issues, and so it's a big deal. You see, what the, what the bottom line is, is we have to decide what we're going to build our lives on. I don't know about you, but I want to build my life on truth. And so we're going to look at what the issue of truth is, and then we're just going to have you, you make the call. One of our um, theme verses for this whole thing is going to be 1 Peter 3.15. Quietly trust yourself to Christ, your Lord, and if anybody asks you why you believe as you do, tell him, be ready to tell him, and do it in a gentle and respectful way. You have that on your listening guide, don't you? I want you to underline or circle those words, Be ready. Back in 1988, the church wasn't ready. Back in 1970, when there was a book written called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was, you know, Dan Brown got a lot of his ideas from that book. The church wasn't ready. Back in 1950s, whenever the uh, the Priory of Sion, whenever that um, organization was established, the church wasn't ready. Well, we want to be ready in 2006, in our little corner of the world. So that's what we're going to do, is we're going to be ready. But we're going to do this with gentleness and respect. We're not going to yell at people and scream at their, you know, you're lost and going to hell if you go to this this movie or you read this book. We're going to tell them why we believe the the way we believe. There is a second verse that you're going to hear over and over again in these next three weeks. And here it is, Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, throughout this series, we're going to give you a timeline. And I'm going to show you that all of these things that are coming up today can be traced back about 18, 1,900 years. There is nothing new about this stuff that's coming up. But we're going to look at that over and over again. Um, this is not a new discovery. Dan Brown's deal is really just a, a an old theory dressed up neatly, to fool as many people as possible. He really does have an agenda. Well, what is his agenda? Let's let's start with a quote by one of the main characters. This is a, a British historian. Now, I use that term loosely because a historian, it would imply that he knew, knows history. But everything Lee Teabing says in this book is is contradicted by known historical fact. But but he, uh, Dan Brown calls him a historian. So here's what Lee Teving says. If you read the paperback, it's on 250-251. Uh, he says, The Bible is a product of man, my dear. He's explaining to Sophie, the daughter of the the Louvre the director who was murdered. The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times and it has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. The only statement in that whole um, paragraph that's true is the Bible did not magically fall from the clouds. Everything else is false. Now, how many of you have attended New Life Community Church for three or four years? Let me see your hands. All right, you folks, I want you to turn to everybody else here and I want you to explain to them how we know we can trust the Bible. Ready? In two minutes. Ready? Go. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Y'all are looking at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> All right, let me give it a try and we're going to do this very quickly. <laughs> Y'all, several of you are like, Ugh. I can't believe you're putting us on the spot. No, we haven't had this course before. That's why we're going to do it now. Now, Jesus was called a teacher. He was called by many people a great teacher. And if what he taught was not true, then I don't know how you can call him a great teacher. Either he knowingly lied, in which case he's not a good person. You can't call him a great teacher if he knowingly lied. Or he, he told us stuff that he didn't know wasn't true, so that means he's nuts, he's He's insane. Or what he said was true. Those are your options. You have, to, you have to choose one of those options. So what Jesus did was he traveled from place to place telling people about the kingdom of God. And he created a stir wherever he went. Um, there was no one who was neutral about Jesus. Either they thought he was a prophet, they thought he was a good man with great teachings, people hung on his every word. Or if you were a religious leader, you were threatened because Jesus was stealing some of your territory. Now one time Jesus was teaching in the temple... And people were stirred, and crowds were coming. Crowds that didn't ever come, at, you know, the regular time of the temple. But they knew Jesus was there, so they were packed in the temple. And Jesus starts talking about stuff, and and he starts reading things from the. This was his his uh, tradition was he would go into a synagogue, he would read from the scriptures, which there was a definitive copy of the scriptures. It was all the Old Testament, but anyway, Lee Tiving doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus would read about it, and then he would do some teaching. So he read about this one scripture, and he says. Uh, it's from Isaiah. He's reading it. He's having a good time. People are. It says in the Bible that people were had their eyes focused on him. He put the scroll up, gave it to the attendant, and then sat down. And then he begins to say, Today, the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And people were going, Because what he just read was, The Son of God will come to teach you. And Jesus like, That's me. And so people were like, No way. Religious leaders, they got ticked, and so when when the crowd dismisses, the religious leaders come to the temple guards and they say, "Why did you not arrest him?" They understood very clearly what Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, and here's what the temple guards said: "Well, um, no one ever spoke the way this man does." (laughs) The guards declared. They said, "We never heard anybody like him." People said, "You know, all of these old teachers, they would quote other teachers." You know, like if uh, if I'm I'm quoting somebody who's gone before me, Charles Washburn said, you know, and that's my authority is my dad. But Jesus said, you know, God revealed this to me and here's what's going on. People are like, oh, no way. This guy's claiming to be the son of God and his stories were such a big deal. And he created so much stir in the countryside that people remembered what he said and uh how could how could you just remember what he said? I mean, I go to Walmart and if I've got more than three things, actually more than two. If I go for one thing, I can usually remember what that is. If I've got more than two, I get I walk up and down the aisles. Actually, I call my wife and I'm like, why did I come here? Why did you send me here? Janie has the store diagrammed and she knows, you know, she can she's very efficient. So I'm like, you go, baby, because she knows where it is. But if I go, I'll call her and say, what aisle is it on? She'll say, oh, it's aisle eight on your right. I don't even bother to try to find somebody in Walmart because they don't have a clue where it is. I'm sorry if you work there. Um, <laughs> maybe you do, but the people I come across, they don't know where it is. I forget. I, I'm 41 years old and I've been doing this for about 10 years. I think it's children. I think that's why I've lost my mind. But I'll walk from one room to the next room and go, why am I here? There was a reason that I walked into this room. I have no clue what it is. How could you remember what Jesus said? Now, you've got to understand First century people lived in an oral culture. That means they talked. I want you to... Now, this one you actually get the answer. This isn't a joke. I want you to turn to somebody and I want you to guess in the Mediterranean culture, those people who lived around the, the Mediterranean Sea in the first century, guess as a percentage how many people could read and write. Alright? Turn to somebody and just guess. <laughs> how many of you said less than 10%? Alright. In the Mediterranean area, about 5% of people could read and write. Alright? So in here, we would have four or five people that could read and write if we were representative. Now, when you take Israel, the Jewish culture, about 3% could read and write. So they could read the Old Testament and they could uh, understand it for themselves. So in the culture at night, they didn't sit around and watch TV. You know, they didn't watch Geraldo at large or whatever that is. I hate that show. Um, They didn't watch the evening news. What they did was they sat around the campfire and they told stories and wise sayings. Now, you may have, have experienced this. Like my kids, when they were younger, they would have their favorite books That that I would have to go in and read, you know, they're like under four years old and you go in and you read them and some of the books are long, man. And I'm laying down and, you know, I'm reading it. And and some nights I'm just tired. Some nights, you know, maybe there is, you know, a news story I want to see. And so you try to skip a couple of pages and you're like, no, daddy, that's not right. Daddy, you're wrong. You you messed up. Yeah. Start over. Oh, dear Lord. And you're going, oh, I just ruined it. You know, I'm wasting another five minutes. And and it got to the point with my kids that what I would do is is I would read a book and, you know, I would get bored. So I would start leaving a sentence blank. I'd say, you know, um, the was it was in the that's, that's a, one of their favorites closet. And my kids would fill it in. I was amazed at their ability to remember things. You ask my kids. We're going on on trips sometimes. And if, if they quit watching the DVD or we run out of DVDs, then we'll have conversation. They'll say, Daddy, tell us a story. But they don't, sometimes they want to hear news stories. Most of the time they'll say, Daddy, tell us about your roommate. Cause I told them crazy things that we did in college. Daddy, tell us about Popeye and Goggles. We, we never knew these two kids' name in college. So one of them had these real thick glasses like the old Gilligan's Island, you know, the guy that, that was lost and ho oh, oh, ho, he had these big glasses. Well, he was, that was, That was Goggles, and the other guy kind of had an eye like this, and he talked kind of funny, so we called him Popeye. We we weren't real kind. But Popeye and Goggles, I said, tell us about Popeye and Goggles. And if I leave out one of the details of the story, Daddy, that's not what you told us last time. So we understand in their in their world, especially before they can read, they want to hear stories. They know the story of how Janie and I met. They know our our uh, whole story when I proposed to her in San Antonio. They want to hear the stories over and over, and that's what you had in the first century, in Jesus' day. Imagine a culture where all they did was they told the stories over and over again. It's one of the reasons why when you read the Gospels, when we talk about Gospels, we're talking the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's where the teachings of Jesus, the actual quotes of Jesus are contained. It's why Jesus, over 80%, one scholar said 80% of the teachings of Jesus are in stories or they're in a form that can be easily remembered. It's because it was an oral culture. That's the way they did things and that's the way they were passed on. Now, after a while, even in this oral culture... The eyewitnesses started getting old, because if you have eyewitnesses, you're sitting around the fire and you tell the story wrong, somebody's going to say, "No, I was there. Here's what really happened." Well, they realized that they needed to write down the story so that the story could outlive the eyewitnesses, and so that's what they began to do. All these, some of these uh, false teachers began to prop- crop up, and they said, "No, we got to get the true story down before the eyewitnesses die." Now. Um, so they wrote it down and, and over a lot of time a lot of other documents were written about Jesus, and some of them were called Gnostic documents. Um, Gnosticism comes from the word knowledge, and it has the idea behind it that there is some secret knowledge that you have to attain to be uh to reach Godhood, that you can you can become divine if you just discover this secret knowledge inside of you. Um, it was something that, that um today we would call the New Age movement. Now, again, you remember that we said there's nothing new under the sun. Even back in, in the first couple of centuries, there was something that they that was very much like the New Age movement today. It was called Gnosticism. Um, today in Islam, there's a New Age type, type movement that's called Sufism. In Judaism, there's a New Age type movement called Kabbalah. You know any famous person who follows Kabbalah? Madonna, and I just read yesterday, Ashton Kutcher also follows Kabbalah. So it's this kind of put everything that you want. It's like going to a buffet and I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of this. It's combine all the religions, the things that you want from all the religions, and you come up with your own new religion. It's not new. There is nothing new under the sun. The Gnostic documents would have stories in them that were radically different from the Bible. Gnosticism was this whole religion that emphasized secrets and whether you're on the inside and whether you could get the secrets. So the early church leaders realized that you know some they should have some type of criteria. They needed to have a standard. Many of you have heard the word canon. They needed to have a standard. Well, well canon just means a standard or the form that you're going to follow. The canon of the New Testament means these are the standard books. And they realized that they had to have some type of way to make sure that this was true. Now, let's say today that I tell you that my foot is one yard long. How many of you buy it? My foot is one. There it is. Well, I really sincerely believe this. And what's true for you may not be true for me. And what's true for me may not be true for you. But my foot is 36 inches long. How are you going to determine whether I'm nuts or not? I have a yardstick I have a standard by which we can measure and you can throw it down there and you can say stick your 36 inch foot down there and let's see so I stick it down here and I say it is 12 inches long and you're like Doug you're nuts we have a standard 36 inches long you're just wrong buddy. But I sincerely believe it. Now, this is what we're going to do with with this whole study. was We're going to show you that there's a standard that was established for the Bible, and that's how we got the New Testament Bible that we had. So they came up with this standard, and there were three criteria. This is on your listening guide. This is what you need to know to realize how we got our Bible. The first criteria was this. Were the documents written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle? Now, you need to understand for our talk today, apostle actually means one sent out, but when you're talking about New Testament times, an apostle was someone who was an eyewitness both of Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection. Alright? So, for a book to be considered authentic, it had to be written by an eyewitness or someone who hung out with an eyewitness. Now, when you think about the first four books of the New Testament, tell me what they are. Matthew, Mark, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, you got to understand this, because Matthew was actually the tax collector. Another name for him was Levi. He was a tax collector. He was one that Jesus called from, tax collecting into following Him. So would he be an eyewitness? Yes, he would. Mark. Mark was a student of Peter. Was Peter an eyewitness of, of, of Jesus? Yes, he was. He's the most bold one. He's the one that made lots of mistakes. But he was an eyewitness of Jesus' life. And so one of his students was Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. And I'm reading through Luke right now in my own personal devotion. And, and I'm amazed at the detail that Luke... Now, you think about a doctor. Would a doctor just accept anything out there as, as true? Hopefully not. Not the doctor I want to go to. I want this guy to have studied. And he says, he's writing this to his friend named Theopolis, and he says, I have diligently searched the facts so that you, Theopolis, most excellent Theopolis, may know what is true and what really happened in the Christian religion. And you know who he hung out with a lot? Paul. You heard about Paul? Paul wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. And he was an eyewitness, alright? And then you've got uh, John. You heard of the disciples Jesus loved? You heard of the disciples James and John? They were the sons of thunder? Jesus called them sons of thunder because they were pretty bold. Their mom was the one that came up to Jesus at one time and said, Jesus, i got a favor to ask of you. When you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on your right hand and on your left hand? And Jesus is like, whoa, that is not for me to give out. you know. And then the other disciples get upset with him. This is the John who wrote the book of John. So was he an eyewitness? Yes, so your first four books of the New Testament meet that criteria. And by the way, all the other books of the New Testament also meet that criteria as well. You've got the letters of John, you've got the letters of Peter, and you've got the letters of Paul. Now some people, if you're a thinking person, you're going, now Paul wasn't actually one who ran around with Jesus, he came later. Yes, but if you remember, on the road to Damascus, if you read this in, in the book of Acts, Paul was blinded by who? Jesus. Jesus. Says he, he was blinded. Everybody else saw the light. They weren't blinded. Paul falls down blind and then he hears a voice saying, Who are you? Why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul re- refers to him as Lord. And then later Paul says, I saw Jesus Christ alive on the road to Damascus. So he qualifies as an eyewitness. So you got 27 books in the New Testament, all written by eyewitnesses or people who were uh, very close to eyewitnesses. Now, the other thing is, let's just write this down real quickly so you can understand this. Let's say that this represents when Jesus is born. Alright, we're going to do our timeline right here. This is when Jesus was born. Now, we know that Jesus died. I'm going to put the cross there. He died around 33 A.D. We don't know that it's an exact date, but we do know that, that you know A.D., B.C., that's, that's based on Jesus' life. So we got around 33 A.D. that Jesus died. Right there's where he died on the cross. We know that for 40 days after he was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to different people. And in First Corinthians 15:3, you're told that he appeared at one point to 500 witnesses at the same time. We talked about this this morning in our in our class. So you've got all these people that have seen Jesus alive. Now, the New Testament books can be dated to have been written between 50 and 90 A.D. Alright, so there we go, 50 to 90 AD. In, uh, in the ancient writings rule stated that if something was going to be, was going to pass, uh, the legal test in a court of law, it had to be written within 70 years of the event that you were talking about. Does this qualify? 33 to 100. That's 70 years. These books, all of the New Testament books were written between 50 and 90 AD, and actually some of the writings of Paul In 1 Corinthians 15.3, that is a creed that they use that that dates back to about two or three years after Jesus was resurrected. Paul says, what I received, I pass on to you. That Jesus came according to the Scriptures. That He lived according to the Scriptures. He died according to the Scriptures. He was raised again according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Peter and all the apostles. And then He appeared to 500 people at the same time. So Paul, that that little creed has been dated back to right here about 35 A.D. Now, this is real important because I want you to realize something. If you are going to go into a court of law and you're going to sit on a jury, whose testimony are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the eyewitnesses or are you going to believe people that live two, three, four hundred years after the eyewitnesses? Which one are you going to consider most credible? Hello? Eyewitnesses. Alright, you're sitting on the, I hope you're gonna consider eyewitness. If not, I don't want you on my jury. I'm gonna tell my, not my lawyer to strike you. Alright? Now, you're gonna to listen to the eyewitnesses. This is big time important. Because when you're talking about the Gnostic writings, and by the way, they call them Gnostic Gospels, which is, which is a bad title for them. Only three or four of them are supposed to be Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels, the earliest one, the most famous one is called the Gospel of Thomas. And I'm gonna read you something in a minute from the Gospel of Thomas, and I mean, you know, some kind of peyote that you had to be on to write the, the Gospel of Thomas. It's just crazy. The Gospel of Thomas, the earliest one. The latest book here was the Gospel of John. Alright, that's the, last, the latest written book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Thomas is the earliest Gnostic Gospel, and we date it around 150 A.D. Now, just a thinking person. Which one are you going to trust more? The ones written here, or the ones written 100 years after Jesus' life? Now, according to the ancient writings rule, would this 150 A.D., would this uh, hold up in a court of law back then? No. Alright. Every other Gnostic gospel was written two to four hundred years later. Alright? You understand where we're coming? So if you have on the one hand, you've got eyewitness testimony that we can date to the first century. Or you've got testimony over here that comes two to four hundred years after all the eyewitnesses are dead. Which one are you going to which one are you going to believe in? Hello. My dad was in World War 2. My dad was on Guadalcanal. And dad and I have talked for hours. Um, I've gone on a lot of vacations with my mom and dad. Janie and I, when she was pregnant with Caleb, we went to Canada and she hated this thing because she was like puking all over Canada. We're going down the road and I'm just stopping in gas stations and and I'm like, can we use your toilet? You know, my wife's pregnant and and ladies in there would go, oh, yes, here's the key, you know. And and so Janie is very familiar with toilets all over Canada and, and, you know, the northwest United States. She hated that that whole deal, but she would fall asleep a lot of times. And Mom would be in the back seat or something, so I'm driving, Dad's in the front seat. One time we are on a ferry going across to this island. We just got hours of nothing to do. And Dad is telling me the most fascinating stories about being on Guadalcanal, about... About air raids when the Japanese would come and the sirens would go off and dad would run, jump in the foxhole, and one time there was a Gila monster in his pants leg and he said that was quite fun. And he talked about snipers picking people off while he's standing in line to uh to, to have their their evening meal and how they had to run for cover and it took them a long time to find this lady. It was it was actually a lady that she was naked, painted the same color as the tree, and she's firing, picking off people in the chow line, and eventually they they knocked her off. Well, I've been with dad to his reunions, the CB reunions, the construction battalion. And I've sat around fascinated by all these men telling stories. When when we're together, when we're in these reunions, we don't have them much anymore because, you know, it's most of them are dead. It it really got to the point that people were dying. Fifteen, twenty of these guys that were in Dad's uh, battalion troop were dying every year. And so there's only a few of them left. But when we went to these reunions, I'd sit around and my mouth was shut and my eyes were open. Just listening to these guys tell stories. Why wasn't I involved in the conversation? I wasn't there. Sonny, let me tell you how it was. Now, I would ask questions, but I was not going to make any comments. Uh, Yes, tell me about the submarines. I did some research. No, I just sat there. They they actually have pictures of of the one-man submarines that the Japanese would send around to try to, to sneak up on them, and they actually sank one of them, pulled it up on shore, and so they have pictures of it. Fascinating stuff. We still have eyewitnesses. This is what we're talking about. World War II, we still have eyewitnesses. That's the time frame we're looking at. And you can trust that. Now, many of these Gnostic Gospels were given fictitious names. Now, if you're writing two to four hundred years after the eyewitness thing, and you wanted to be accepted by people who also accepted Christianity, what would you do? You'd give them names like the New Testament books. So we've got the Gospel of Mary. We've got the Gospel of Judas that they just discovered. Oh my. The Gospel of Judas says that Jesus actually told Judas to go and betray him. And then at the end he says, I forgive you. Well, if, if, you, number one, if you were Judas, you know, you wanted to write a letter, you'd try to make yourself look good. Judas killed himself, so I don't know how he did that in between the time, you know, he killed himself before Jesus resurrected. He must have been one quick writer. They didn't have, you know, computers back then. Anyway, you would probably try to make it look legitimate by giving it names of people that actually lived during that time. But if they are written two to four hundred years after all those people died, what kind of uh, trust or, or how reliable are those things going to be to you if you're on the jury? Not very reliable. Now, the second criteria, first criteria had to be written by somebody who was an eyewitness or a student of an eyewitness. Second criteria is this: the contents of the book had to be consistent with the kind of teaching Jesus did. Okay, we're going to have some fun with this. Now, remember, Jesus' teaching had been the topic for many years at this point. So the Gospel of Thomas, I told you, it was written about 50 to 60 years after the last book of the New Testament, or the last written book of the New Testament, which is the Gospel of John. Now, Some folks like the Jesus Seminar. You ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? These people, I just cannot take them seriously because what they do, they believe that the Gnostic Gospels are more reliable than the New Testament we have. They sit around and they have these pebbles, different colored pebbles. And so they sit around and vote on whether things that were in the New Testament, whether Jesus actually said those. How much later have they lived than Jesus? Two thousand years And so this is really what they do. They'll take a red pebble and they'll cast it if they think that's what Jesus said. And I don't even remember the other colors, but then they'll come up with percentages. And so they'll say, oh, Jesus didn't really say He is the way, the truth, and the life. We don't believe that. You know, there's, there's only 5% of however many are on the Jesus seminar believe that. And I'm going, I don't give a rip what you people think because you're trying to prove something else. You have an agenda. I'm going to go back and I'm going to study the real thing. The Jesus seminar said, let's take Thomas more seriously than what we have in the New Testament. Let me read you some things from the Gospel of Thomas and you make the call. Uh, here's one. Jesus said, blessing on a lion if a human eats it, making the lion human. Foul is the is the human if the lion eats it, making the lion human. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Here's number 56 of the 114 sayings of the Gospel of Thomas. Whoever has come to know the world has discovered a carcass. And whoever has discovered a carcass, of that person the world is not worthy. Ah. (laughs) Here's one of my favorites. When you make the two into one, and when you make the inner like the outer and the outer like the inner and the upper like the lower, and when you make the male and the female into single one so that the male will no longer be male nor the female a female, and when you make the eyes in place of an eye, a hand in place of a hand, and a foot in place of a foot, an image in the place of an image, then you will enter into the Father's domain. <laughs> it's all clear now. <laughs> it is. I'm thinking I need to take some type of medicine to understand this. You know, smoke some peyote or something. Then, then... Now, the simple fact is the Gnostics tried to steal Christian names to promote a pagan religion. And Christianity from the beginning has stood against paganism. If you read the, the Da Vinci Code, you'll see that really the agenda is this sacred feminine and that sex is the highest... Um, uh, possible act that you can do and you can only know God through sex. And then they describe these bizarre sex rituals. I mean, I, I actually felt like I needed to take a shower after reading some of these sections because I felt dirty. Um, because it's just, I'm going, no way does this guy claim to be Christian. By the way, Dan Brown on danbrown.com does claim to be Christian. But then if you read the rest of the paragraph, you'll understand his idea of Christianity and the Bible's idea of Christianity are far different. Now, here's uh, the last... This, we'll use this next one next week when we talk about no girls allowed because one of the claims is that, that Christianity used to be you know gods and goddesses and we got rid of the goddesses and it's only gods and all that stuff. This is from the last part of the Gospel of Thomas. Ladies, I think you'll like this one. Simon Peter said, "...let Mary leave us." Talking about Mary Magdalene. "...for women are not worthy of life." Jesus said, "...I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males." Sometimes some kind of weird operation or something that you're supposed to have. Aren't you glad that's not in the Bible? Okay, so the second criteria is that a book, a writing, had to match up with the eyewitness testimony of things Jesus said. Does any of that stuff match up with what Jesus said? Not even close. Here's the third criteria. It had to be read and accepted by the entire church. So it had to have wide use widespread use and, and acceptance by the church. Now, you've got to understand, the church wasn't just in Jerusalem by this time. Paul had gone on his missionary journeys. He'd gone on three of them. So all through Asia Minor, even over to Rome, there were churches everywhere. And the churches from the beginning, from the time of Jesus, when the books were written, 50 to 90 A.D., they had to have universal acceptance in order to be included in the Bible. So this whole... Idea that the Bible was put together by Constantine in 325 AD is just pure nonsense. That's not even what the council was about. Councils were sometimes called together because they were trying to defend Christianity from these wacko people that write stuff like the the Gospel of Thomas and so in 325 A.D., they weren't even discussing whether not to put the Bible together. They already recognized the Bible for 300 years before that. What they were discussing was, is Jesus of the same essence of God? Because these people rose up and they said, no, Jesus, the Gnostics, they, they didn't like the physical. They said that spiritual is all that mattered. So if, if physical doesn't matter, they say, get drunk, have sex with as many people as you want to have sex with, because the physical doesn't matter. All that matters is your spirit. Christianity has said from the beginning, we are both body and spirit. And, and so it does not match up whenever you try to add those things together. So there's one uh, scholar who said none of the non-canonical Gospels comes close to meeting any one of these three criteria, much less all three. Does that make sense? So, is everybody clear on how we got our Bible? There were three criteria. You had to be eyewitnesses had to, or somebody close to an eyewitness. It had to have universal acceptance and it had to match up what Jesus said. Now, New Testament professor William Barclay said, It is the simple truth to say that the New Testament books became canonical because no one could stop them from doing so. This means that what you have in the New Testament passed all of these tests. What you have uh, in, the, in the Gnostic writings did not pass the test. Here's Josh McDowell responding to why does it matter and why are we responding to all this Da Vinci code? Now Romans 1:16 says I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew then the Gentile. What gospel means is good news. And when you call this Gnostic writings gospel, that is not good news. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The good news is that God was unreachable until God became a human and made a way for us to get back to heaven. That's good news. You and I are rebels by nature. We're rebels. and and we are going to do our own thing. And we are sinners, and we do the wrong thing all the time. And because of that, we cannot go into a holy place called heaven and live with someone who has no sin. That is God Himself. And so what he does is he reaches down through Jesus Christ, who was a real man, who appeared to real people, who who was fully human and fully divine at the same time. And he provided a sacrifice because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus Christ shed his blood so that all who come to him can be adopted into his family. And only those who are adopted into his family get to spend eternity in heaven with him. So my question to you is, number one, are you ready for the time that you will die and you stand before God? Because the Bible's real clear on this. The Bible tells us that when you stand before God, he will, Jesus Christ will open up the Lamb's book of life and He'll say, what is your name? And you give your name. If your name is found in the book of life, He'll look at you and He'll say, come into my heaven, come and enjoy my Father's kingdom. But if your name is not found in that book of life, the Bible is very clear and he says, Jesus will look at you and say, depart from me because I do not know you. Jesus Christ is our advocate before God. He's the one that, that, that stands before God as our defense attorney. And if you are a Christian, meaning you have given your heart to Jesus Christ and you are trying to follow what he says, then he will turn to his father and he'll say, this is one of ours. I know this one. We are related. But if you are not a follower of Christ, which I'm sorry, Dan Brown's uh, claim of Christianity does not not hold water when you compare it to the Bible. When Dan Brown stands before God, unless there is some grace in his life and unless he receives Jesus Christ before he dies, when he stands before God, Jesus is going to say, this is not one of ours. And God will say, depart from me. I do not know who you are. And people have been saying for 2000 years, how can a good God send somebody to hell? Well, a good God doesn't. People choose by their lifestyle and by whom they worship where they are going to spend eternity. And you choose on this side of death whether you want to follow God or not. Once you die, it's too late. Because when anybody, when they see heaven, they go, yeah, I want to go there. But you've got to do it before death is what Jesus Christ said, what the Bible says. We need a Savior. We don't need just a good guy to hang out with who says... Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Because God's not going to look at your life and say, you know, my son's life didn't really matter a whole lot. I, it's not a big deal if people spat on him. They killed him. They died for your sin. Wink, wink. You know, I'm a, I'm an old grandfather. Come on in. It's all right. No. God says my son's life was so important that what you do with his life determines what happens to your life when you die. Now, would you just bow your heads for just a second?